Do me a favor really quickly. Think about your favorite TV or movie villain. Think about what makes that villain great. Their personality, some of their traits, how they carry themselves, how they walk, how they think. All the things that make you love to hate that villain. Now, I bet that character was probably diagnosed in his childhood years with schizophrenia. Now, what this does is it puts a bad light on this disease. It makes people believe that those with schizophrenia are more prone to violence or can't lead a normal life. All of this is incorrect. That's why I brought Matthew Dixon on the show, and he will tell you that he does have schizophrenia to explain what the disease is like and how he lives his life. Let's start the show. to another episode of Relatively Normal. I am your host, Mark Paisant. As always, it is a pleasure to have you on the show, to have you listening to the show. You're not really on it right now, but you understand what I'm saying. As always, I appreciate you listening. If you would like to become a paid subscriber, head over to anchor.fm or the link in the show notes and hit that money button to become a paid subscriber for as little as 99 cents a month. Anything is appreciated. You know, with the money I've made, I've been able to purchase new equipment, especially this microphone that I'm on right now. And as always, this show is brought to you by 6AM Run and 6AMRun.com. Head over to that website to sign up to get 20% off of your first order. First of all, Big thank you to those who have reached out and appreciated and like the new intro music and the new segue music. I've had that in my bag for a while and decided, why not? New season, let's try some stuff. But on to the show. So again, I wanted you to do a little, you know, searching the history of the TV shows you watch and the movies that you watch, and think about the greatest villains or the villains that you like the most. Most likely, a lot of them, especially the psychological ones, will have some type of medical record, some type of psychological record. Oh, this person was diagnosed with schizophrenia as a child. And that adds to the allure of this villain. And now we believe they're more prone to violence. There's nothing we can do. It's in their DNA. It's in their mind. We have to help them or they're going to kill more people. And oh my goodness, this could not be further from the truth. My guest this week, Mr. Matthew Dixon, has schizophrenia. He's had it since he was a child. And he's going to talk about what the disease actually does to him, what it can do to others, and how just by him talking about it with people like me is helping to kind of lift that stigma, not just of the people with schizophrenia or this disease, but in the stigma 
of mental health awareness and just helping people with mental health issues. Also, which is really cool, a lot of cool things about Matthew. I'll be honest with you, there's not, I I can't, not that I look for things for me to not like about people, but there's nothing I do not like about Matthew Dixon. For one, he has a website that is there to help people in developing countries that do not have access to mental health help. That is truly amazing. He is truly inspirational. Another thing about him is that he's constantly learning, constantly wanting to know know more about schizophrenia, about mental health, about motivation, about the human mind, about helping others. And this might be the cherry on top. He bicycled across Canada when he was only 20 years old. So I think you're really going to enjoy this conversation I will have with Matthew today. And I really, you know, why I do this show and why I do shows like this, of course, is to give people platforms to talk about different mental health issues and how they cope. But again, the big reason is to end stigma about mental health. But also, Matthew says something really cool. He he says that I want to show people how to become less apathetic and become advocates for causes. The world needs so much more help. And I know there's some people listening to this show that think, I feel the same way. Like, I think the world needs so much more help. I want to donate to charities. I want to be a mental health advocate. I want to be an LGBTQ ally. I want to, you know, there's things. I, I want to be an ally for women in the workforce. I want to do all these things. But the thing about it is that not enough of us are like that. A lot of the world, a lot of the people here are self-centered and they only care about what affects them. They don't have time to really help others. Well, Matthew is making time. Because his website, mineaid.ca, and he'll explain it, it steers people towards seven nonprofits using models of basic mental health care, which are low cost, proven effective, and scalable. So not only did he have a dream, but he's finding ways to make, make it successful. So right after the quick break, I'm going to be back with Matthew Dixon, and he's going to talk about his life with schizophrenia. Thanks for listening to the show. Hey, thanks for listening to my podcast. I want to take a moment to talk about 6AM Run and 6AMRun.com. If you have followed my mental and physical health journey, you know that I love to run. I believe it saved my life. 
That is why I want you to know about 6AM Run. With over 10,000 five-star reviews, it won't be hard for you to see why it's one of the highest-rated nutrition brands on the market. Their mission is simple. 6AM Run believes in improving everyone's physical ability to not only have motion, but stay in motion. All this while creating an amazing, supportive, surrounding community. With great flavors like watermelon, fruit punch, raspberry iced tea, and my personal favorite, pop and candy, you'll find out that it doesn't matter where you start, one block, one mile, or one marathon. 6AM Run products guarantee you finish. 6AM Run helps fitness enthusiasts through their unique, all-natural blends of hydrating nutrition. Their products provide the fuel needed to achieve breakthroughs in performance. In fact, 6AM Run sets the standard for nutrition. Check them out today by selecting the link in the show notes for an added 20% off of your purchase. I am sure you'll enjoy their products as much as I have. Now let's get back to the show. And welcome back to the show. Thanks so much for joining me again. Again, like I mentioned before, I have a really good guest this week. I want, I've said a little bit about him so far, the things he, he's done, the website he's involved in, but I want to give him a chance to introduce himself. Matthew Dixon, thank you so much for being a part of the show. Why don't you go ahead and just introduce yourself, tell the people what you're doing, what you're involved in, so everybody kind of knows who you are. Sure, thanks. Uh, my name's Matthew Dixon. I have schizophrenia. I'm 50 years old now, so I've had it since I was about, well, my early 20s. I am doing well now, and uh, before I got too sick in university, I bicycled across Canada. Uh, that was a real treat for me, and it's something I uh, thought about a lot all these years, being sick and unable to do long-distance biking again like that for many, many years. It's a dream of maybe being able to get into that again. But I also help people with mental illness in developing countries on my website, mindaid.ca. It's, uh, that's, that's my main focus these days. So how did that, I mean, you're very open with it. You, you, you introduce yourself. You said, I have schizophrenia. What, how does that, you know, when was the first time you, you had to say that out loud? What was the feeling was it scary? What was that like having to say those words out loud the first time? Well, for me, I don't really remember saying it out loud the first time to other people. I do remember hearing it for the first time when the, the doctor came in and uh, he said, well, we've been, uh, the whatever the words are, poking and prodding you for a while now, and we think you have schizophrenia. And that was a real bombshell to drop. And that was in 1994, and back then, I the only I didn't know anybody who had schizophrenia. I'd only seen maybe a couple movie references to like a split personality sort of thing uh, portrayed inaccurately. I knew nothing about it, and but after that, having I mean, for many years, having to say that word in public to people, I mean, I I, I like talking about it. I I still do. It's it's I I want to you know if you. 
if you walk down the street to the grocery store and you're attacked by a lion and you come back home and you don't say anything about it, well, for me, it's just like, I, I just want to talk about what I'm going through to share it. But uh, even still to this day, um, and it really bothers me that I have to do this, but uh, if I'm in a group setting, you know, in a, in a coffee shop or on the sidewalk somewhere talking to people and there's strangers around, I still will lower my voice when I say schizophrenia and I, and I don't like doing that. Uh, if, if I'm talking about schizophrenia in a conversation with somebody, but things have changed. We've gotten a lot more open about talking about mental health. I couldn't even talk about mental health uh, on the street 20, 30 years ago. So it's, uh, it's changed a lot. I mean, I, I feel totally fine talking about mental health with, with a stranger in the, the grocery store or something. So, and so what do people, what do people get wrong about schizophrenia? I know, I know exactly what you're talking about, how it's, you know, labeled in, in the movies and how we see a schizophrenic character, but what do people, you know, what are your symptoms and what do people literally get wrong about it? Well, I'll start off with one of the main things I want people to know is that People with schizophrenia are no more prone to violence than the rest of the general population. The, I mean, violence is difficult to define. There's many different types of violence. There's bar fights, there's kicking, biting, scratching, psychological violence. But if you take a stat of, well, they say, depending on how you define it, 2% of the population is violent. And that doesn't mean they're all murderers. Um, the rate of murder in Canada is about roughly one per 150,000 people per year. So it's pretty darn low. Um, but uh, if, if 2% of the general population is violent, it's the same for people with schizophrenia. 2% of people with schizophrenia are violent. Yet we have this stigma around us that it's, uh, it's, it's, it makes it very hard. And it, I mean, it's basically as ridiculous as saying, oh, you're left-handed? Ooh, I've got to be careful about those left-handed people. I mean, because some left some left-handers kill people. It's true, and you got to watch out for them, sort of thing. It's that ridiculous. The other thing is that uh, about schizophrenia, seventy-five percent of people with schizophrenia have hallucinations, and those can be all five senses: uh, sights, uh, taste, sound, all, all five senses. And also, I don't know many people probably don't know this, but some hallucinations are actually nice and pretty and enjoyable. And uh, some people can have all bad, some people can have all positive, some people can have a, a mix of the two. But the ones that are bad can be tormenting for some people. I was in the 25% that don't have hallucinations, so I was quite lucky that way. It's uh, schizophrenia, it's a lot of people say, you know, they can kind of get their heads wrapped around depression or anxiety because everyone has those feelings, at least mildly sometimes. And but people say, well, I couldn't imagine what schizophrenia would be like. And I'm I'm going to say it's not a whole lot more off, of, you know, out into the unknown that most people couldn't wrap their heads around. It's uh, for me, I think a lot of the symptoms are quite similar to other mental illnesses like depression or anxiety. I had depression and anxiety as well. Uh, it's things like disorganized thinking. That's a characteristic of, of uh, schizophrenia. Uh, it's it's hard to organize your thoughts. There are things like it's hard to it's hard to think about things generally. You can think of, about things specifically, but just not generally. It's hard to think about concepts or ideas or or, or, or an overview of something in just your general second to second thoughts that you have. So it really makes 
it's like reading a book with all the words jumbled up out of order. Uh, you can make sense of some things, but uh, it's just really very chaotic. And I will say though, and other people with schizophrenia say the same thing, parts of your brain are disorganized and it feels like your thoughts are going a mile a minute, but there are other parts of your brain ticking along just fine. You wake up in the morning and you think, hmm, what should I do? What should I have for breakfast? Hmm, maybe I'll have some Cheerios. Uh, maybe I'll go for a walk today. Uh, should I go back to school? Uh, should I do this? Should I do that? So part of your brain does function just fine. And so, you know, thank you for, for clearing that up. So when you have, when, when you are going, you know, you, you're noticing yourself and, and you might be um, a little disorganized, you might have trouble like, um, you know, just staying focused. Is there, is there medications you take or is there coping mechanisms? Is there things that trigger you that, you know, things are about to happen? Like, how do you cope with your schizophrenia? I, mine was, I didn't really have a revolving door. Uh, I, 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 so for medication, I tried six or seven of the 1960s antipsychotics back in 1994. None of them worked for me. A new uh, antipsychotic had just come out in the market that year, and I tried that. It worked. It worked glacially slowly, but I stayed on it, and I'm still on it today. And you're going to have a hard time getting me off that drug because it's it was one of the few things I could do to to get myself better. With schizophrenia, they generally say because it's a severe mental illness, you're probably going to need medication. So I know milder forms of mental illness, you can get away without medication, which is great. Um, I'm all for not taking medication if you don't have to. But for me, I'm like, well, yeah, it was, uh, no pun intended, a bitter pill to swallow having to be on medication. <laughs> but, I mean, what would happen? Basically, what would happen if you if you weren't on it for a couple of days? Like, what what would happen to your your thoughts? To your like, would you have a, a negative like a withdrawal from not taking it? I have no idea. I have. So about once a year, I will forget to take my medication. I take it once a night. And in the early years, like the first four or five years or so, if I did forget it, the next day I would feel a bit sort of staticky in my head, sort of electricy in my head or something. Um, but it didn't hinder me a whole lot through the day. I could still get up and do stuff regularly. But in my 28 years of taking this drug, not once have I gone two nights without taking it. It's always just been one day, so I don't know. I've had a, I've had a pretty steady. As much as I felt like my life was just utter chaos, I did have a fairly stable. Uh, I like to call myself stably unstable. Um, there's there's stability in my life. I I didn't. Uh, I faithfully took my medication. I tried to do the right things. I went to a job. I had the same job for twenty plus years. And uh, bought a home, bought many cars. Uh, I, meant, I mean, not many cars, but I've always owned a car. I'm not Jerry Seinfeld. Yeah. <laughs> and so, yeah, it was... Uh, I, for things that trigger me, I, I didn't really have things that triggered me a whole lot. I tried to do, What I tried to do was pace myself. And I actually learned how to do that on my bike trip, just pace myself. When I was biking across Canada, I might get a burst of energy, but I'm like, no, Matthew, just don't, don't waste all of your energy here. You've got another 50, 100K to bike today and just, just pace yourself, just pace yourself. And I did that through my whole recovery. I tried to push myself 
so that I could progress and improve, uh, take little leaps of faith all the time and, and bigger leaps of faith sometimes, but just pacing myself, trying to do just slow and steady, watching my emotions, watching what made me get anxious or upset. And it, it was a real balancing act. Um, yeah. And you, you mentioned um, biking across Canada. Uh, what made you do that? I mean, Canada is not small. And, <laughs> and what, what made you do that? And, and what was that experience like? So in high school, I wasn't, I wouldn't call myself an athlete. I was never training for anything. I was on our soccer team in the fall for a month or two. But I mean, I, I wasn't training for months to do that. I played a fair bit of golf as a kid. Um, did went for a run, I don't know, probably twice a week or something. I did some biking, but I was never really training for anything. I was in okay shape. But uh, this newspaper article uh, I saw said, you can pedal across Canada. And it said that anyone in average physical fitness, if they do the training, can do the trip. And I read the article and within minutes of... Uh, Actually, I'd seen the article a year before. Uh, my mom had clipped it out of the newspaper and given given it to me. And I just stuffed it away in my drawer. A year later, I read it, and uh, this time it was different. I thought, hmm, there was a phone number to call at the end. This is before the internet. And I, I phoned, the, phoned the number and talked to someone on the other line, and they said, we can send you more, some more information. They sent me a package in the mail with... 40 pages of information about how to do the trip. And they said, if I send in a hundred dollars, I could reserve a spot on the trip. So I did. That would have been in like November, 1991. And anyway, the whole winter went by and I started telling people, I'm, I've signed up to bike across Canada. And there's all this buzz in the air of like, Matthew's gonna bike across Canada. Matthew's gonna bike across Canada. It's kind of neat. Part of me was thinking, Matthew, what are you doing? Seriously, what are you doing? It was sort of this background, sort of little anxiety or apprehension, or I don't know what you want to call it. It was a, it's a different feeling that I never had before. Anyway, April, May, and June, I did the training, they said. My first bike ride was three 10-kilometer bike rides a week, or for the first week. The second week was three 15K rides, then three 20K rides. After 12 weeks, I was biking 100 kilometers uh, three times a week. Well, the last week was three times a week. June, uh, sorry, July and August, the trip happens. It's an organized trip, a tour to Canada. They do it every year. They've missed. They, they've only missed 2020. They came by 2021 and 2022. And anyway, I did the trip. It was wonderful. Um, I had always... <sighs> It was daunting to do, like I said, I was, but once I was out there, I was like, wow, this is so much fun. Why isn't everybody doing this? And so much easier than I thought. It wasn't totally easy, but it just wasn't, it wasn't as daunting as I thought. And I really enjoyed it. It really put some wind in my sails and gave me some confidence and very, very happy I did that trip, trip did that trip. Yes. I mean, I risked being hit by, being hit by a truck. Um, but at 20, I, I, I don't know. I just did it. it came out of nowhere. Um, when, uh, when you said that it was easier than you thought, is that, you know, is that kind of a, um, an attempt to kind of invalidate how much training and how much preparation you did? Because what I hear is that you followed the plan, you worked really hard 
and the you the training was hard and that's what allowed the actual bike ride itself to feel easier to you i have a feeling if you hadn't trained as hard or as structured that trip might have felt a little harder to you well uh, a book called miles from nowhere i read in the 80s it's a couple from california who biked around the world they left california no training the first two weeks they were sore but they kept biking and after that they were fine on my trip, when I did it, there was a guy who was 40. He was six foot five, 295 pounds. He lost 30 pounds before the start of the trip. He quit smoking cold turkey, didn't do one inch of biking. For the first few weeks, he was slower getting into camp. We stayed at campgrounds. and But by Ontario, halfway through the trip, he was flying with the rest of us. The other thing is that we were, not, we were no Tour de France riders by no means. I was so slow compared to them. The Tour de France, you have, and that's really intense training for months and months and years to do that. Uh, this was just simply, and that's what I try to tell people. We There's a thing called persistence hunting. Uh, hunter-gatherers have done it, uh, and it's simply hunting prey for hours and hours. You can just walk for hours and hours. People golf, spend four hours golfing on their feet, and like it's nothing. People play two 18 holes of golf in a day, and, it's, and they can do it uh, walking around. It's... Uh, the human body can very quickly adapt to just low, uh, low intensity cardio for for all day. I mean, I it just took me three months. Yes, it was a lot of biking, but just three months to train. That's it. I wasn't on any special diet. I didn't do any weights. I didn't do any stretching. Really, I should have. But it's uh, <laughs> you were twenty. Why would you stretch? You're twenty. Like why your 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 muscles are, are are loose all the time. I remember being twenty two, but um, well, well, here's the other thing. Uh, people on my trip, there were uh, 60-year-olds who did it. One guy was 72. He was a marathon runner. And after uh, every bike trip, he ran 10K at 72. And the guy who, who created and organizes the trip, Bud Jorgensen, I saw him a few years ago. He was 80 years old. And uh, I met him when he came through my part of the country. And he was 80 years old doing the trip at 80 biking across if, Canada. If, if I could be so lucky as to be able to stand up when I'm 80, I'd appreciate that. that that's, that's amazing. So you go from, um, you know, biking across the country, learning you have schizophrenia help, you know, learning more and more about the disease and, and learning more and more about yourself. And from there, you decide to start assisting others in um, other countries in um, poverty, um, people who, who don't get the mental health assistance that a first world country would get. Um, before we talk about that, what what's the genesis of that? Why? I understand it sounds like you're a very empathetic and sympathetic person, but why go that route? Why why decide I'm going to um, you know open up this this website so people have the ability so I'm able to help people through nonprofits for their their mental health care so in my worst year a lady saw me walking down the street and she said I looked like I was walking through a world of flying glass and I was like yeah that's right thanks for noticing that's how it felt I felt like I was being shot at bombs were being thrown at me like I was walking a tightrope across shark infested waters and just afraid to spread it. It felt like I was going to die at any moment. <clears throat> and this is in, I live in a very small town, sleepy part of Canada, very peaceful, nothing to worry about. And 
It's, it's very scary what I went through. And my heart went out to people who had war to go through, who had extreme poverty and the, the troubles with extreme poverty and mental illness to go through as well. Uh, my heart just went out to them. I was barely keeping it together and with almost everything else in my life pretty good, except for schizophrenia. And I had, I had never had any problems with substance abuse. That was another thing I was thankful for. Anyway, it wasn't until 2016, 2017, and this uh, TED Talk appeared online. And, and I'd never gone looking for mental health in developing countries content. And this TED Talk by Vikram Patel, uh, it's on my MindAid website, if you scroll down a bit. Uh, he talks about mental health in developing countries. What they did was in the 90s, he developed a way, a model of basic mental health care. And it's how to help people where there's no doctor, where there's no hospitals for hundreds of miles. How do you, how do you help someone? And they'd already done this decades earlier with um, physical health, how to help someone um, you know, with a broken leg or pneumonia or deliver a baby. But uh, anyway, so this model now since the 90s, it's, it's proven effective. It's uh, approved by the World Health Organization. It's uh, co- it's low cost and it's scalable. And the the who is trying to figure figure out how to roll it out to the masses. In the meantime, I found ten nonprofits that you can donate or fundraise to, donate to or fundraise for, uh, helping using these models of basic mental health care. And on my website, there are also other groups that are doing that you can't donate to, but they they have they're doing more like political work or advocacy work in other ways and i those on my website too and i'm always I, I just found 10 more today on a mental health webinar i was on that i want to add to the to the site so i'm always finding more which i'm very happy about and, and that is that is amazing we'll, we'll i'll post a, a link to it in the show notes so one of the things you mentioned is is how do you make it scalable? Like we're working on that right now. Um, do you have any, any thoughts? Is there any future plans? Like how do we make sure that the people who need this great program that you're in your website are offering? How do we, how do, as a, as a society, how do we make it bigger? I know there's, we can, of course, money goes a long way and we can all donate, but how do we make the actual process um, more scalable? Does it take volunteers? Does it take money? Does it take time? Like what exactly do, do we need? So first off, I'll say that my website is the only one of its kind in the world. If you research uh, all these groups involved in mental health in developing countries, they're scattered across the web. And I've got them all on one site. I've done the work and I'm proud of that. I hope that it'll, it'll get more traction as time goes on and can be a hub for the cause. um, UNICEF, like the large humanitarian organizations, UNICEF and uh, World Vision Plan, Oxfam, they work with mental health. Um, But it's if you wanted to donate to them, it's more they don't sort of advertise it or promote it as much. You might be able to help uh, a child soldier recover from their trauma, a gift like that for $50 or something. Um, If you phone them, or, or email them, whatever, you, you could give a donation and ask them, could this be put towards mental health? But most of their gifts are farming tools, uh, buying a goat, uh, drilling a well, that sort of thing, which are all you know great. But uh, the groups that I uh, promote, uh, they, they've helped thousands of people uh, get basic mental health care. 
Uh, one interesting one is Strong Minds. They are really going gung ho and getting lots of uh, lots of traction. They've also started Strong Minds America, and they're using these models of basic mental health care in America, starting in New Jersey, and where they where they're located uh, for youth uh, for BIPOC youth, which is huge. And they're they're trying to reach out to these like Strong Minds is reaching out to the larger humanitarian organizations like Oxfam saying, can you incorporate these models into what you're doing? Um, he's trying to get, uh, Sean Mayberry, the founder of Strong Minds, is trying to get, make that happen. So I did find an article online um, in the last year that explained why uh, the larger ones, UNICEF and whatnot, aren't working as much in mental health. And I can't. I thought I'd saved it and I can't find it. I'm, I wish I could. It was sort of involved and complicated, like why they aren't or, or aren't as much. But uh, hopefully as time goes on, that'll change. And with the pandemic and mental health being talked about so much more, hopefully that will change soon. Uh, but yeah. I mean, do you, do you believe in your, you know, and your, and I'm asking you this directly, so I, you know, it, it's definitely your opinion, but in your, in your personal or professional opinion, is it, would you say those organizations haven't been involved in the past because, you know, the, this, the scale of being able to show how many people you've helped or how much you've helped is more tangible in actual, uh, you know, physical health or the tools needed to um, help a community or the water or the food versus something that has that negative connotation, that negative stigma as because I'm sure the people in these countries are, you know, if people in in the United States and Canada aren't really openly discussing mental health at a certain point. People in third world countries or poor countries are probably not going to be discussing as much either. So it's probably hard to, to physically show how much help you're doing for that population. Yeah, I have found, and I think this is on the strong minds website somewhere. Uh, it could have been somewhere else, but there are documents that show, uh, reasons, uh, reasons, uh, if you want to advocate for mental health in developing countries, uh, what you're up against, sort of the pros and cons, things that will work in your favor to promote it and things that won't. And you're right, like uh, mental health is harder to quantify. And that's one of the reasons too. I mean, also, I mean, well, uh, Shekhar Saxena, he's from Harvard University. He spoke at the UN and he said that every country when it comes to mental health care is a developing country, which is food for thought. So, I mean, uh, yes, uh, you could say that. So, I mean, Germany, the U.S., Canada, we all have elements of a developing country's mental health care system here. It's classified as that. Yes, there are levels of a developing country's mental health care system. I'd still rather get mental health care in Canada than, than some places in Africa, say. But, uh, but we're all, we have all got so much more work to do. And, yeah. You're... you're, you're... That is, I mean, that is, that's not just food for thought. That's a, that's a five course meal for thought right there. That was, you're absolutely right. When it comes to where, where technology is, where we are as a society in, in North America and just the lack of affordable and available mental health care for a lot of the people that we have, um, so I commend you on the work you're doing. Like I said, I, I'll, I'll post a, a link to um, the the website. So, you know, before 
you know, I, I, I let you go. I, I, I wanted to kind of, this is something I thought about before and I totally forgot to ask you. So I'm, I'm glad we're still on. So if, have you ever thought about the fact that you said, I think you said you were diagnosed in the nineties back in 94. Is that correct? Yeah. When you yeah. okay. So back then versus say you were that same kid today. Um, how different do you feel that diagnosis diagnosis would, would have been? Um, do you think, I know we've had advancements and I know that the medicines have probably changed. I know that doctors are more, um, they, they know more about the disease, but the reason I ask is because, you know, even when it comes to, uh, mental health nowadays, if I go to a doctor, to my pediatrician talking about some uh, my daughter's pediatrician, they still say we're, we're nowhere near where we need to be in regard to specific mental health things. And, and I think it's, has there been a, a lot of strides in regard to schizophrenia uh, research and medication, or do you feel we're kind of the same place where we were in the mid nineties? I think it's improved a lot, uh, but we still have a long, long way to go. I'm very happy with the awareness that we've had in the last 10, 12 years or so about mental health. It's just been slowly growing and the pandemic blew it out of the water. I've been talking to a schizophrenia advocate. She has schizophrenia. She's in Saskatchewan, Canada, and she's 25-ish. And she's doing things with schizophrenia at 25 that I was not doing at 25. She's a certified hypnotherapist. She's putting on virtual events. And I could barely, uh, there's a lot of things I couldn't uh, do like that at, at uh when I was uh, when I was that age, and I don't, I asked her, you know, why why are you like that? Is it the medications? And she didn't really know. Uh, maybe it is. Uh, I'm not an expert in in all this stuff, and I wish I uh, could be. Uh, there's so much I have to learn about this too. I do want to mention a book by Todd Leader. He's in Nova Scotia, Canada. His book is called "It's Not About Us," and it's how he transformed his area of Nova Scotia, uh, one part of Nova Scotia, the mental health and addiction system there. He radically transformed it by making it client-centered, not bureaucracy-centered. He got wait time for, he did many things. One of them was getting wait times from five to eight months down to three weeks or one week or less. And he teaches people how to do this like he already has done for the rest of Canada. And I'm trying to, I'm, I'm assuming other countries could do, use the same process. He did it in his small area of, you know, 70 thousands of people. He did it. He's already done it. It's a wonderful system. And, and you're absolutely right. And, and I, I know that feeling of having a mental health crisis and then going on to a website or calling a doctor's office and them saying, oh, we have availability in, in three months. We have availability at the, uh, the end of the year. Yeah. And it's it's heartbreaking for someone who's going through a crisis or needs to speak to somebody. I know we have some, you know, we have the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline and we have EAP for people who are employed, but, you know, you have the person that's going through a crisis and, you know, we need to do more things like that to get people the care they need as soon as possible. Yeah. Um, I so, wanna, yeah, go ahead. I want to throw out, I just had an idea while talking to you. There is a lady in Quebec, Canada in 2002. Her name uh, is Louise Gosselin. She took the government to court saying it is cruel and inhumane to give people below subsistence levels of welfare, social assistance. 
Uh, in Canada back then and still today, it's about $500 a month, which I've never understood. The court, uh, it was a heated debate in the court. Nine judges ruled five to four that it wasn't their decision to make that decision. And that's how it ended in 2002. A lawyer, a lawyer friend of mine had to study that course when he was taking law school. I'm thinking in 2002, things are way different. Is it time to revisit that? The idea I just had talking to you is, well, the words cruel and inhumane just stand out to me on that. Should we be saying these days that it is cruel and inhumane to have a mental health care, mental health care system like it is now? If people cause make enough fuss, more people will take action. More people, it'll be more socially acceptable to say we need to do this now, instead of people saying the same thing for years. The system isn't good; it needs to change, and uh, and we're sort of okay with that. Uh, life coaches say that people get into chaotic situations and adapt to the chaos. Are we as a society just adapting to the chaos? How much of a fuss do we need to put up? Should we be using the words cruel and inhumane? I think we should, because you just said you phone a doctor, phone the mental health care system, and they say it's months. When you're barely hanging on for seconds at a time, minutes at a time, months is like trillions of years, and it's cruel and inhumane. When it, when it can be changed, Todd Leader did it in Nova Scotia already. He did it. All it, it, takes, it takes more people speaking up and it takes because when we start speaking and when we start talking about it, the stigma goes away and you know people start you know bonding together and the more voices the better so you're absolutely correct i, I it definitely is cruel and inhumane to have someone who you know may have never had a break in their life may have never um been fortunate to have you know a job that had EAP may not know here's the thing a lot of people don't even know what they're going through like I'm sure somebody with schizophrenia that doesn't really know the symptoms is not on you know does not want to commit any violence you know thinks well that's part of it because of society like doesn't really understand what's going on you know we we still don't have enough information to the masses about that and I think you're absolutely correct about doing that and you know since you know you've talked about a lot of the relationships you have i this is the the question i definitely wanted to ask you is with schizophrenia and i think this is a question a lot of people probably have and you may get a lot how does it affect relationships whether that be romantic relationships social relationships working relationships how does your schizophrenia you, you mentioned at the beginning you used to if you don't still kind of you know quietly say i have schizophrenia but the actual your actual relationships that you have in your life how does schizophrenia affect those it's tough to talk to people it hurts to, it hurt me to talk to people i tried to do it anyway uh it was people said i paused a lot when i was sick um i'm doing well now but it, um but uh, and i well i improved weekly every single week for 20 plus years i improved a small, tiny improvement. So it was just a slow, steady climb up. It was difficult to talk to people. I tried to do it anyway. People said I paused a lot. I was I was always thinking, is this a normal thing to say? Is this normal? Is this normal? Should I say it this way or that way? I described it as losing my common sense. And so not like a, like a logical sort of thing, but just the sense of being, of community, of how to commune with someone. Just uh, 
I didn't get certain things like when to pause in a sentence, when to uh, more, when to inflect your voice, like make your voice go up and down more. Um, I just lost a lot of that. And I read books on people skills, how to do better that way. Um, but it's uh, it's tough. It's uh, I yeah. I, I, I associated with people with autism who who didn't get sort of uh, cues from from people's faces and whatnot. I don't know if I really had that or not. But it's uh, there's definitely something just sort of missing with uh, in conversations. And that's what I'm enjoying now. I get to enjoy like oh, this is what it feels like to have a conversation with somebody and just know sort of the vibe in the room or you get to pick up, you know, the whole reading the room kind of thing that most people for that, for the most part have to a certain degree for when they're healthy. I hadn't, I mean, I wasn't a great public speaker when I was a teen, but I had some, you know, I could have fun with my friends sort of thing, be more lighthearted and jokey and not take things too seriously. Whereas for many years, I just had to take everything so seriously in it. Yeah. Well, on the flip side of that, how, how have you seen people, react to you or you know their reactions with you their relationships have they changed once a person knows you have schizophrenia whether that's a close friend or not whether that's just an acquaintance have you seen people's kind of the way they talk to you the way they they you know interact with you has that changed once you explain that you have schizophrenia I would say I've been fairly lucky. I I was open about with schizophrenia. I didn't, once I got to know someone a bit, you know, I'd sort of throw out the words mental health and then depression and then schizophrenia and sort of throw it out that way, saying that I just, I just always felt a lot more comfortable uh, knowing that people uh, knew what I had. It just was like, oh, thank God that's out of the way. It's like, I, I really wanted to get the elephant. I, w- I really wanted to say, look, there's an elephant in the room here. Uh, and I'm going to bring it up. It was me who was bringing it up. I would bring that up into conversations uh, right from the get-go quite often. I just felt very uh, relieved about that. And I I mean, on that note, I was always very open about talking about my experience. I was, I was always trying to talk about it. I wish people would talk about it with me more all those years. And I just felt uh, some people say that you know, well, I, I can't, you know, I wouldn't want to talk about mental health with them because it's, you know, these deep, dark secrets and I don't know them that well and all these sorts of things. For me, it wasn't deep, dark secrets. For me, I looked at it as symptoms. You go to a doctor with a broken leg or, you know, cold or whatever. Well, how does it feel? Well, I've got a raspy throat or, a, you know, uh, whatever, throbbing in my leg, blah, 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 all these sorts of symptoms. And it's, for me, it was the same thing with schizophrenia. I just wanted to talk about my symptoms. Well, this is the way it feels. It's, uh, you know, I've got, you know, it feels like I've got a knife in my chest or it feels like I've got, uh, you know, brain fog. This is, I just wanted to talk about it that way. I didn't want to get into the deep, dark secrets. I mean, how many people have deep, dark secrets anyway? It's, uh, how many people have bodies buried in the basement? (laughs) I'm I'm with you 100%. You're absolutely right. Like we, we, the, the physical ailments, we'll talk about, you know, till we're blue in the face. And I kind of see that's how we let that stigma kind of go away is we have these, I'm, I'm the same way as you. Let's, let's talk about it right now. The more we talk about it, the better. Um, the last question I have for you is, you know, someone who's listening to this, someone who may, someone, someone may say, Hey, go listen to this podcast who just got diagnosed with schizophrenia, 
who is in that that space where they're confused they're they don't know how to feel about it you know it's fresh in their minds what can you tell that person who just got diagnosed is going through the doctor's appointments going through some of the testing looking at some medication looking at some coping mechanisms what can you tell that person right now I will recommend watching Lauren Kennedy's YouTube channel, Living Well with Schizophrenia. She's in Alberta, Canada. Great resource. Look up Students with Psychosis. Uh, it's a nonprofit founded by Cecilia McGow. Uh, she's got a TED Talk, I Am Not a Monster Schizophrenia. She's in New York City. Also, look up Avatar Therapy if you have hallucinations. It's a way of getting rid of your hallucinations in a matter of weeks. It's remarkable. It doesn't work for everybody. It works partially for some people. It uses an avatar on a computer screen with a therapist in the next room. You get to talk to your hallucinations and stand up to them. And it can get rid of them in a matter of like weeks sometimes, which is incredible. The other thing is that um, read, educate yourself on how to get better. For me, I, I didn't have, there wasn't a, there, there still isn't a lot, of, a ton of literature on schizophrenia. There are some books on it. For me, I found reading books on just general mental health tips, people skills. I was in the self-help section a lot. I was in the business and career section even more because all these top CEOs want to improve their mindset. Uh, the book, The Survivor Personality by Al Siebert, S-I-E-B-E-R-T, was a phenomenal resource. Unbeatable Mind by Mark Devine. He's a Navy SEAL. He teaches people how to have all these Navy SEAL mindset secrets. Verbal Judo, The Gentle Art of Persuasion by George Thompson. He teaches people how to deal with people like a police officer with words, not weapons. That's made, for me, dealing with people so much easier. Also know that it gets easier. The initial stages of schizophrenia can be so tough and you think, man, it's hard to imagine a pain. It's hard to imagine different layers or different levels of pain as time goes on. You're just so bombarded by this intense level. It's hard to imagine that it could get get lower or go away. But the the intense at the, the intense part of the start for me, it lessened and it allowed me to carry on longer than I thought. And as Mark Devine in his book, Unbeatable Mind, will tell you, you're capable of so much more than you think. Navy SEALs are taught that they are capable of 20 times more than they think they are. And I felt like I've been tested similarly. I had no idea I could last this long. No idea. You've got, and I tell people, you've got so much more inside of you, inside of you than you think. We all have vast amounts of courage, patience, determination, fortitude, strength, built inside of us, waiting to be used at a moment's notice. And if you're just diagnosed with schizophrenia, it's going to come out. You're going to find that. The other thing is that uh, uh, Kevin Hines, uh, he jumped off the Golden Gate Bridge and survived. 2% of the people survived that fall. They've asked people, it's well documented that uh, people who attempt suicide and survive, they've, they've been asked, what were you thinking immediately after the, the point of no return, like for jumping off the bridge? What was your thought when there was no turning back, when you were falling? Many of them said, I instantly regretted it. Kevin Hines said that. Kevin Hines is a suicide prevention advocate. He still has suicidal thoughts. He knows he will never end his life by suicide because he knows he can just keep going. When you're at the brink saying there's no hope left, I want to die. There's hope beyond hope. 
I wrote an article about that online. There's hope beyond hope. When your hope is done, there's other things in the world, in the universe, whatever you want to call it, that are that are just helping you out. And you can keep going. Your mind plays tricks on you when it's really just, it's got more inside it. Thank you so much for all that. And I'm sure so many people need to hear that. And that was, I mean, that was beautiful. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. This has been a pleasure, Matthew. Thank you so much. You know, I want to personally commend you. Like you've done, I can tell you've done a lot of work. You've done a lot of the reading, a lot of resources. And then you're taking that into your your advocacy group, mindaid.ca to help others and that's what that's what this is all about it really is um taking care of ourselves and taking care of others so matthew thank you very much um how else can people find you online how yeah how else are you um on social media uh my, well my website at the top is all my links i'm on facebook twitter instagram linkedin tiktok and youtube and uh, if you go to the about section of mindy.ca, there's a link to all my links on Linktree. And you can see all the stuff I've got going on there. There's a Facebook group on MindAid. Uh, you can join to meet other like-minded people, uh, figuring, figuring out ways to help uh, people with mental health in developing countries. Uh, feel free to join that. And YouTube, I try to, I'm focusing a lot on YouTube these days, more so than the others. Uh, Facebook a lot, LinkedIn a lot. And uh, I'm trying to make more YouTube videos. So, yeah. Well, this has been great. Thank you so much, Matthew, for being a part of the show. Um, Like I told everybody, um, I will have a link to his website in the show notes. Matthew, keep doing what you're doing. I hope others emulate what you're doing. Please, everybody, go to the website, donate, volunteer, make sure that we do our best to help others out and Remember that we can, nothing is ever that bad where you need to jump off a bridge. Please talk to somebody. Please reach out to the show and somebody will listen. There's people, there are people on this earth that are very happy you're here today. Matthew, you have a great rest of your day. Thank you so much for being a part of the show. Thank you. A huge thank you to our guest today, Mr. Matthew Dixon, for coming on the show and speaking so openly and honestly about his life with schizophrenia. Remember, head over to his website, mindaid.ca, to learn about helping developing countries that have no mental health care. As always, Relatively Normal is written, produced, and edited by me, Mark Paisant. And if you or someone you know is in crisis, please contact the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline by dialing 988 on any phone.